Hello, and welcome to the Thames and Hudson podcast. In this episode of the Thames and Hudson podcast, we'll be looking at the remarkable life and work of John Nash, war artist, painter, illustrator, gardener, botanical artist, cartoonist, and creator of some of the most vivid and evocative depictions of the British landscape. My name is Eliza Appley, and I'm delighted to be joined today in our remote, COVID-friendly studio by author Andy Friend, who has just published his new biography of Nash, John Nash, The Landscape of Love and Solace, with Thames and Hudson, and Sarah Cooper, Head of Collections and Exhibitions at the Towner Gallery in Eastbourne, where a major Nash retrospective will open in May 2021. Sarah and Andy, thank you for joining. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Now, John Nash was, in his lifetime, a highly successful artist. Self-taught, he blazed into the London art scene in 1913 and remained prolific for the next 60 years. In 1967, the John Nash retrospective at the Royal Academy was, for the time, unprecedented in scale and scope. Yet since Nash's death, 10 years later, in 1977, he has receded from view. Today, John Nash is either entirely unknown or lost in the shadow of his older, more famous artist brother, Paul. Thankfully, Sarah and Andy are here to help us rediscover John Nash as an exceptional artist in his own right and to become reacquainted with the boldness and the breadth of his vision, both across different media and across remarkably different emotional registers, from modern satirical cartoons to harrowing depictions of trench warfare to serene bucolic scenes in the Buckinghamshire countryside. So I'd like to begin today by visiting Nash in his studio in the summer of 1918. He's back in England from months out fighting in the trenches, and he's back at work on several paintings, including what would become two of his most famous, The Cornfield and Over the Top. Could you describe these two paintings for us, Andy? Why are they so important in Nash's work? Well, maybe, Eliza, I should describe the studio first, just briefly. It was an abandoned herb-drying shed spotted by Christine Kulenthal, his wife, who he had married just a few weeks before. And he'd just been appointed to be an official war artist. And in that role, he was basically having to recreate the experience he'd lived through during 15 quite traumatic months in France on the lowest ranks of the sort of military hierarchy. He was a private and then a corporal. And the painting over the top describes a very specific moment at the end of his active military service. It's mid-morning on December the 30th, 1917. It's at a place called Marcoing, which is near Cambrai, and the painting depicts the moments after the section he was leading were ordered to go out into the battle, into no man's land. It's a painting of pitiless realism, 
with an almost malevolent colour palette that is really appropriate to what was an unfolding moment of tragedy. So on the left-hand side of the painting, you have the brown gash of the earth, the trench from which these soldiers are emerging, and that runs away up a few hundred yards to a low skyline with a broiling pewter cloud formation above it and also a, a white slightly yellow cloud which is suggestive of the gas that was in use that morning and to the right is the snow-covered no man's land that these soldiers are moving out into and it is the soldiers figures who dominate this image there are 15 in all Nash himself that morning was leading a section of 14 of his comrades most of whom died within the following 10 to 20 minutes so we're looking at a very specific moment seared on his mind nine months before he was working substantively on the painting. And these figures are either already dead, bullets are entering their body, they're about to die, or they're moving out with a sense of fatigue and fatalism into no man's land. And while he was working on this painting, he was simultaneously back in England, back in this herb shed. He'd just got married. His brother was actually working at the other end of the herb shed on his war art. And here they were in the peace of the Buckinghamshire countryside, but having to brood on the, what they had lived through, what people were living through still in France, because this was before the end of the active fighting, of course. And they were employed, both Paul and John at that time, on a scheme that meant that all of their output had to go to the crown, to what became the Imperial War Museum. So they felt that they couldn't really work on other work but after a couple of months of this sort of activity, they decided after they'd finished work at sort of six o'clock-ish, they would go out into the countryside and almost be able to return to the sort of art they had both been creating before the war. And that resulted in the very famous painting, The Cornfield. And in fact, if you go to the site of where the herb shed was and you walk five or 600 yards from its back door uh, across a road, you come to what is known locally as the Dell Field. And this field is very distinctive in that it's uh, surrounded by a tree line, woods on both sides, but there is a gap in the tree line on the far side of this cornfield. Uh, there is a low sun out of the picture image, but its light is streaming through the gap in the hedge and illuminating the recently harvested field with a line of cork and stoop in the foreground. And nothing could be further from sense of colour and the uh, emotional resonance of the over-the-top painting that we've just been thinking about. And indeed, Nash himself asked about it in future years. He said, look, I painted it in sheer relief at still being alive back in the English countryside. It was a, an act of thanksgiving for his survival. So two really extraordinary canvases, both with this profound feel for for physical terrain, for the lay of the land. But as you so beautifully described there, Andy, in extremely different contexts and extremely different emotional registers. And I wonder, Sarah, for you curating this exhibition, I know the Towner Gallery has a particular interest in artists responding to landscape. What you feel Nash brought in particular to the landscape genre? 
Yeah, when um, Andy and I first worked, we've been working together for quite a long time now, and one the first big show we worked on together was Revilius & Co., The Pattern of Friendship. And it was during that show that John Nash sort of entered our consciousness in a way more than he had before. I knew his work because he features in the Towner collection. It's got a strength in landscape, landscape representation. And we hold fantastic Nash work of a disused canal in Wormingford from 1970, plus a couple of his other lithographs. So we were well aware of his work, but it was in doing the Revillius show that we really explored his career a little bit further. I realised what a kind of resonance it, it had to, to the collection and to the other artists in it and how their paths crossed at different times in their careers. And I think his work just absolutely fitted in with with the programming that we try and do here at Towner and also he has sort of dropped out I suppose of public appreciation slightly something Towner is always keen to do is is revisit artists who have been a little bit forgotten by art history or by other museums and John Nash was absolutely one of those artists and I think there was a period of time in which Andy and I probably on the back of the Revillia show were having slightly separate conversations with people about how much we liked Nash. And I particularly remember the moment in the cafe where we were having a coffee and both of us went, John Nash. <laughs> and we knew that would sort of be our next project to, to take forward here. Now, one of the really remarkable things about John Nash is that he had no formal artistic training. But he did have his older artist brother, as you mentioned, Andy, Paul, who would be an important influence on his career. I wonder if you can tell us a little bit more about the brothers and about the Nash family. So, indeed, Paul was four, four and a bit years older than John. They were both born into a, a family that was sort of upper class in habits and expectations, but not quite in terms of the availability of finance. Uh, his father was a, a respectable but not particularly successful barrister at law. And the great, in a sense, shadow over family life was their mother's increasing mental distress. Reading back into the history, she was a depressive and that illness became more insistent when John was sort of three, four, five years onwards. And in fact, probably the incident that led to her spending more and more time in private sanatoria and nursing homes was um, at one point during an episode she uh, reputedly attacked John with a knife. From then on the, the sort of shadow over family life was her absence. John landed up being sent while his mother was away to a public school called Wellington which was known for its sort of military enthusiasms and sadistic culture and his escape there, his survival mechanism was an enormous interest in botany which also had the handy by product of getting him out of team sports that he didn't like. So he won the botany prize and so on. But whilst he was still there, his mother actually died. And Paul, who was older, was at her bedside in Paddington in West London in this private sanatorium. And Paul was always interested in metaphysics. He was a sort of latter-day pre-Raphaelite in, in, in that sense. He had a fascination for what happened to the soul after death, which I think is traceable back to uh, the day of his, his mother's death. John 
by contrast, was at school and I think was just called in and told by the headmaster, your mother's died sort of thing, in that beautifully emotionally sensitive way that the English institutions behave. And and I think that there, I mean, there is a serious point here that the absence of female solace, uh, the absence of his mother, I think lent a sort of slightly manic edge to John's behaviour at various points well into the future, which perhaps we'll come on and talk about that and his relationship uh, with Christine. John, he landed up being a cub reporter on a local newspaper. By now, they were living out in Buckinghamshire. They'd originated in Kensington. And he spent a year, basically, junior reporter, cycling around the countryside and so on. And he'd always illustrated his letters home to his absent parents with little cartoons. And during that year of going around the countryside, he began cartooning. They attracted the family attention and they attracted Paul's attention. And he sent them to a connection. He had a man called Gordon Bottomley and there was a very enthusiastic response. And I think that was the first kind of shove in the direction of maybe John is going to be an artist. You, in your question, referred to the fact that Paul had a a great influence on, on John's artistic development. And I think that is partly correct, but I think... Paul's influence was more on John's life, on the course of his life, at a couple of crucial points. Paul was not only the supportive older brother, he was a crucial player in what happened to John. But I think we almost need to reverse the proposition in terms of artistic influence. It is true that Paul's has a mighty reputation now and many, many more people know of his art, but it was John who was an oil painter before Paul was. It was John who became adept at wood engraving slightly before Paul really uh, hit his stride with the medium. So it was a two-way street and John was in a sense always his own young man and then man and then older man as an as as an artist and had a very different perspective to Paul in that his art was really founded on observation of nature and a naturalism Paul was more interested in the metaphysical he was more a follower of the various artistic movements that emerged through time thinking about influences Another really integral figure in Nash's biography was his wife, Christine Kuhlenthal, who we've mentioned a couple of times now. Her role has, unsurprisingly, been under-acknowledged in other accounts of Nash's life and work. But you describe her, Andy, as the presiding spirit of their joint enterprise. Can you tell us a bit more about her? Who was Christine Kuhlenthal? What were her sensibilities and what were her own talents? Yeah, I, certainly. Christine was an extraordinary person and it is really uh, good to be able, because of the, her journals have now been made available, uh, to be, be able to bring her more to life. So she was part of the circle of young women students at the Slade who loosely sort of were all allied on new Dora Carrington. Through Dora... 
uh, John uh, met Christine just at the time that he was emerging um, as an artist. And they gradually sort of um, saw a bit more of each other over the following year. But they became lovers about 10 weeks before John entered the forces finally um, and went off the war. And uh, during those 10 weeks, they pledged that if he came back alive, they would marry very strikingly for the time they had this sort of um, libertarian notion that they would have a they would get married but their relationship would be at once uh, one that was committed but also in, in modern parlance open um, uh, and it's certainly <laughs> the, the subsequent 60 years they've certainly proved the point in, in many directions but Christina she'd been at the Slade she was a very good painter in her own right but once she had taken up with John she felt it was going to be difficult for there to be two practicing artists in the same household she was prepared in quite a traditional sense to kind of subjugate her career aspirations to his and she also I mean they did not have a lot of money during many periods of their life uh, including the post-war period and points in the 1920s and then recurring again in the 1930s and 1950s and she was extraordinary in terms of knitting together various small income streams from dressmaking teaching dance classes doing a little bit of illustration herself in order to keep you know their collective ship afloat over and beyond that, she was extremely assiduous in her care and protectiveness for, for John in creating the space for him to be able to work. And she also, I mean, she jokingly wrote to Revilius once and said, I'm the president of the Artists' Country Hunting Society, by which she meant that she would often go off and look for the locations which she felt would inspire John's best work or places he would be interested in within the rural landscape. So their life is one of a lot of journeyings in spring and autumn. And then he would come back and he would work in their studio, his studios at there are um, successive homes on oil paintings or finished watercolours. But often where they went, how they spent their time, where they stayed was uh, uh, the matter of a lot of forethought with Christine. And their life together, their emotional life together was a complex one. They were both kind of in search of intimacy on a very profound level. But for Christine... She had a very high ideal about what closeness to a person meant in an emotional and an almost quasi-spiritual um, sense, not in a religious sense, but more a kind of spirit, spiritual sense. Whereas John, I'm afraid, was more of the classic male. Um, so he, he, uh, um, uh, he had many, many other relationships, some of which endured over decades, others of which were sort of more passing in, in nature. And I think it does go back, you know, pop pop psychology, but it, for me, having read all the letters and the diaries and traced out the pattern of their, his relationships through time, there is something slightly manic about his pursuit of female company. And I'm sure it goes back to those uh, that early stress within his family about his mother's mental illness, absence, and then death. 
Sarah, I'd love to hear a little bit more from you on the Nash's wider circle. Andy's already mentioned Dora Carrington and, of course, Paul Nash, John's older brother, who would both remain significant figures. But there were other artists that formed part of John and Christine's network. Can you tell us a little bit more about that scene and maybe some of the other key figures and key encounters in Nash's career? Yeah, I think one of one of the brilliant things about working on the career of John Nash is it it's such a it's such a long and prolific career. It basically spans seven decades of work um, and the first two thirds of the 20th century. So those his life is rich with those connections and crossovers and Andy has beautifully woven them together within the text for the book and our challenge was to really how how best to represent those within the exhibition how to kind of bring those key moments of crossover while still making it a sort of John Nash solo exhibition and we we'll we'll do that by sort of including works by some of those kind of protagonists in the story at, at key moments for, for Nash. So, Claughton Pellew, he will appear very early on in the show, who John Nash went on these painting trips with to Norfolk and was absolutely um, influential in, in his decision to become an artist rather than a journalist. And then again, quite early on in the show, we'll, we'll look at the, the London group. Nash was quite an early member of the London group. And, and then later, a couple of years after that, in the Cumberland Market group with Sickert and Robert Bevan and Gilman and uh, Spencer Gore. And we will show works by those artists to kind of illustrate this, this crossover. The great thing about John Nash was his, was his affability and his, his ability to cross between, between these different groups groups with with seeming relative ease he was welcomed into them in at times when Paul was absolutely not Paul tried twice to get into the London group and was turned down whereas John got in on his first on his first try he was invited to be part of that group so I think the influence of those artists is really important to look at in the context of Nash's career Um, we will be looking at Paul as we've discussed in the context of the war works particularly Later on, we'll look at his relationships with Revilius and Borden. This was sort of in the, in the interwar and the Second World War period, particularly with Revilius. And then further on, when, he, when Nash comes out of the Second World War and moves to East Anglia, that's when artists like Cedric Morris and Peter Coker come into play as really significant figures at that point. Cedric Morris was a sort of fellow artist and plantsman and gardener, and the two of them had an interesting relationship and overlap in some of their work. So the exhibition is really just about looking at how those those connections merged and crossed at different points in Nash's career, both professionally and personally. So in terms of Nash's personal life, we've talked a little about the long and complex, but also enriching relationship with Christine, and the many periods of challenge and difficulty that they faced as a couple. But there was clearly no setback as significant and as traumatic as the death of their young son and their only child, William. How did this impact their relationship, Andy, and how did it affect Nash's work? Right, I think, I think the, um, as a couple, it wa- I mean, it was an, a, a terrible, terrible uh, tragedy, uh, obviously. And I think it was, for John, 
he internalized the pain and the hurt of it in a very extreme way. Uh, I think largely because in the two years, I mean, William, William was only four years old um, uh, when he died in 1935. But in, in the sort of toddler phase and in the couple of years before, I think John had opened out to fatherhood emotionally in a way that he didn't at first when William appeared as a, 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 as a sort of babe in arms. But you really get the feeling that in that last summer of 1935, they were getting close and enjoying each other's company, you know, adult father to young, young boy in a way that um, was doing something rather marvelous for John. So when William died, and he died literally just by falling out of a car and hitting his head on, on the curbside, the car being driven by Christine, it was a sort of searing, searing, terrible blow to both of them. But it hit John very hard. And I think it, for a while, drove them apart. If you look at the pattern of their days, they spent a lot of time apart in the, in the, in the subsequent two years with other friends and, uh, and so, so on, other friends, other lovers, uh, 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 etc. And I think one of the, the, the reason why we've sort of the tagline, the landscape of love and solace is that John's work and working practice was in a sense to, there's a lovely quote towards the end of his life where he says, the artist's main business is to train the eye to see, then to probe, and then to train his hand to work in sympathy with the eye. I have made a habit of looking, of really seeing. So his being outside, being in the landscape, intimately getting to know particular places, the structure of which he would bring into his wood engraving, his watercolors, his oils in a quiet, personal way. But he was, in a sense, there observing for you, the viewer, what he divined in the landscape. He is not an active presence as a person, in a way, you feel, in a way. So he is really trying to get close to nature. So his reaction to the extreme personal pain was in those years between William's death in November 1935 up to the outbreak of the Second World War, was to immerse himself in work. He worked he, he, in all different directions, commercial art, book illustration, painting, uh, etc. Uh, and I think that takes us to the really the foundation of his art uh, in that he he was he did he was not not influenced by other artists i mean some of them he knew and some of them he didn't there was a period in the 20s where clearly Cezanne was a significant influence on his approach to oil painting and we'll have some wonderful oils from that period in in the show but but he was always his own man in the sense of those childhood habits of botany and gardening that he'd picked up, his closeness to the soil, his awareness of the structure and architecture of growing things, which comes through so well in, in, in many of his drawings. And there's a lovely quote when he was um, having his sort of on-again, off-again dalliance with um, uh, Dora Carrington. He writes to Dora 
uh, from Gloucestershire. I think it's summer 1915, and he's away. Um, uh, his father is down in Gloucestershire doing his revising barrister bit, and he writes to Dora. He says, the farmyards here are so good, I think I shall do farmyard scenes for the rest of my natural. I am convinced now, even more than formerly, that a strict adherence to nature is the only thing worth doing, even at the risk of being dull. But how can nature be dull? What is cubism or anything else to nature? And I think that last sentence really takes us to the heart of what makes uh, John Nash so so whole, so real in terms of his pursuit over such a long time of a particular vein in artistic practice. It is this notion of um, he, he he was not he was never going to be a follower of fashion. He was going to follow his instincts in the face of the natural world. If you see what I mean. Absolutely, and it is as you bring out this kind of reciprocal invigoration in a way, you know, John did so much for the landscape genre and the landscape, as you described, did so much for him, both in terms of artistic inspiration, but also, as you described, during these periods of deep distress, deep trauma, and through the episodic depression, which he experienced throughout his adult life, even predating the trauma of the trenches. Yes, indeed. Indeed, I think that's very, very true. And during this particularly difficult decade from William's death through to the end of the Second World War, what kind of work was he producing during that decade, Sarah? I mean, certainly, as Andy said, it was, a, it was an incredibly prolific time for Nash pre-war, um, during the Second World War, he um, he was sort of recording these slightly more, um, I guess, domestic domestic um, scenes. Uh, he was in Plymouth and Swansea, and then in Scotland with Brevilius. Um, and the majority of his works at those times, I think, were drawings and watercolours mm. rather mm -hmm. than oil paintings. So the works that we'll include in the show from the Imperial War Museum, for example, are largely um are largely pencil drawings and, and watercolors um, there is one particularly fine key oil painting um destroyer in the dry dock from 1940 which is a striking um sort of blue ship in the center of this painting um it's in the collection of the cartwright hall art gallery in bradford who've kindly agreed to lend it to the show and i think it will be a really important work to show what he was doing during this period and there's one other one he did at that time, Eliza, which is, um, which in a sense gives is the exception that proves the rule uh, alongside the, the painting that, that, that Sarah ha has mentioned. And it's of uh, the aftermath of an air raid on Swansea docks with people firefighting after uh, bombs have been dropped on the uh, quayside. And it's uh, dark and vigorous and has an, a, a real emotional depth to it. And that was the one incident up to that time where he, I mean, he went out, he was part Part of that firefighting he was there at the time and I think it it it, 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 it sort of harks back to his finest first world war art where, where he was creating art out of activity he'd been involved in as a participant rather than just as a spectator 
Then in March 1951, so a few years after the end of the war, Nash is elected a full member of the Royal Academy, the same institution that would then put on this vast retrospective of his work in 1967. He received a CBE in 1963, further affirming his status as one of the real elders of British art. Yet, as we've touched on a couple of times over the course of the show, in the more than half century since then, Nash has receded into the background of artistic recognition, or at least into Paul's shadow. And yet his influence seems to ripple so clearly and vividly into contemporary painting. I'm thinking particularly of Hockney's very well-known and much beloved landscapes. I'd love to know from both of you why you think Nash's work was relatively neglected for the last five decades. Is it just that landscape and the war and interwar years fell out of fashion? I mean, I I certainly think that's a really big part of it. I think coming out of the Second World War, there was a desire to be... And and sort of through the 50s and into the 60s, there was a definite desire to be looking forward rather than backwards at that at that time, as as it would be entirely natural. Um, And I think the 60s saw this new kind of energy and optimism that resulted in an absolutely different kind of genre of painting, you know, abstraction, conceptualism. It just wasn't what John Nash was doing. And as Andy has said, he was he was a man who was true to his to his style and to his interests. And inevitably that that will at some point fall out of fashion and and not not be what people are interested in. But I think, as you as you say, with Hockney, there were artists that were still looking at his work and holding him up in, you know, in high esteem. Yeah, and I think there is. There are two points, one related to his artistic practice and one related to his character. He was somebody who was naturally modest and reticent. He and Christine chose to live in these remote rural locations. They didn't think a lot of the metropolitan art scene. Uh, They had a nose for pretension and they didn't like a lot of the rivalries that were played out in the metropolitan art scene. Whereas Paul was an absolute player, you know, in in those. He was much better at self-promotion. Had he lived on into the 1960s and 1970s, he would probably have been putting himself up as as a... precursor of the YBAs, you know, that there is something about his character that in a sense he, de- he didn't push himself forward as part of any new movement at any, uh, 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 at any, any time. None of that interested John at all. What interested John was being out there, being in the farmyard, being in the wood, being by the river, trying to record the essence of what he was seeing and feeling in the face of nature. So it's a much quieter, less self-proclaiming approach to uh, the visual arts. And I think consequently that fed into, you know, in the time of the singing 60s and and, and beyond, fed into a, just a feeling he, he this is old guy, he's working away in East Anglia. He's a local artist. I mean, the Arts Council, despite the fact that he created perhaps the widest topographical panorama of the British Isles during his working years, referred to him when he died as a 
local East Anglian artist. You know, well, how, how inappropriate does that now seem? And we hope that this exhibition and we hope that this moment is a time next year when, you know, the museums and galleries are hopefully post-vaccination back to having more of an attendance will be a moment for many more people of the current generation to begin to appreciate what a very substantial and creative artist uh, um, John Nash was. Sarah, what what in particular motivated you to put on the to put on the show, and what do you hope to really bring across to people? Like Andy said, I think it's about raising the profile of this for unjustifiably forgotten artist who whose work so successfully spans so many medium I mean you know we've we've touched on his oil painting his watercolor his wood engraving there are so few artists that were excellent at all of those and Nash is one of them and the thread that runs through all of those works is his love of nature and the landscape and I think just making that clear to our audience and showing them his capabilities and his skills and his eye and his vision will just make this an exceptional exhibition and and remind people what a great artist he was and what they've been missing all this time. Well, Sarah, thank you. And thank you, Andy, for indeed reminding us what we've been missing and reacquainting us with Nash's greatness as an artist, sharing the breadth of his talent and that infectious love of nature and love of landscape that runs through all of his work. It's been such a pleasure to speak with you both. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. John Nash, The Landscape of Love and Solace, is out now with Thames and Hudson. The Towner Gallery exhibition of the same title opens in May 2021. You've been listening to the Thames and Hudson podcast. 